open your Bibles tonight first to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Let's start there. Matthew chapter 5 verse 27 is where we'll begin. This is a sermon in the series, What Do You Think? We're talking about the way that our minds must belong to Christ so that he can change us from the inside out and uh, fulfill all of his purposes in us. We can't become like Christ until we think like Christ. Uh, we can't possibly conquer the sin in our lives until we engage the mind of Christ. And uh, of course, this brings us to today. This morning, I talked about the thought sin of worry. And tonight, I want us to talk about sexual thought sin. Uh, I noticed nobody's sitting in the middle much, so like, I guess you don't want me, me to make eye contact with you uh, in, in this sermon. And, uh, and that's okay. Understand in some ways it's awkward, in other ways it's so important. And uh, so I appreciate the freedom this church gives me to uh, simply preach the Bible wherever it takes us. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 is where it takes us to start. Let's begin here. I want us to think about the very idea of a thought sin. And that's what I've been talking about all day today, thought sin. Notice what Jesus says. That this is good. Matthew 5, 27. He's talking, of course, about... Um, the Jewish tradition, the Pharisees' tradition, and notice what he says. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks, okay, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Okay, so Jesus is talking there about sexual sin in very strong terms. Um, but he really moves it. He, he, he moves the... Uh, the idea beyond just uh, the sin that you might commit with your body, uh, actual adultery. Jesus pushes that further back. And, and where does he take it? Yeah, right to the point of the mind. It's Jesus himself who establishes this idea of, well, actually, it goes back even further than that. We're talking about thought sin. And obviously, Jesus says, even the sexual thoughts that occur in your mind, these make you guilty of, of sin. Okay, let's just break that down. How can a thought be a sin? It's just a thought. We've already said we think all kinds of crazy things. Thoughts pop into my head. I didn't ask them to pop into my head. I don't necessarily want to think it, but it just pops into my head. And yet Jesus says that I can be guilty of sin because of what I, what I think. What I think is private nobody knows about it I, I'm not going to act out everything I think about I'm just not you're not either how can you say that a thought can be a sin talk to me when you dwell on it Rhonda says that there's a point at which it's not just a thought popping into our heads it is a thought that we are playing uh, and rewinding and pausing uh, it, it's a thought that we're entertaining enjoying uh, it, it crosses a, a line into something that we're actually indulging in. Absolutely. Yeah. What else? Thought be a sin. It's just a thought. Yeah, when we act upon it. But Jesus actually here says you don't have to go that far. You're already guilty of adultery if you've had the lustful thought in your mind. That's sin, Jesus says too. Don't even have to act on it. 
the thought itself makes you guilty of the sin. How can a thought be a sin? It's a thought. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this is what uh, the coming of Christ does to the idea of the law. The, the, the presumption was if you followed the rules outwardly that therefore you were going to be righteous before God. But Jesus turns that upside down. He turns it inside out, I should say. Jesus moves the, the locus for sin. It's not just about what you do on the outside. It, it's, it's what you are on the inside. So first off, understand God gets to say what sin is and what sin is not, and he says that there is such a thing as thought sin. So whether you think you agree with that or not, you don't get a vote. God says that there is such a thing as, as thought sin. It goes even back beyond what Jesus has, has established. Look back at the Ten Commandments. There's one commandment in particular that's different from the others. What is it? I mean, there's thou shalt not steal, there's thou shalt not kill, there's thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yeah. Coveting is different. Because what's coveting? Yeah, that's an inward desire. Yeah, coveting may lead me to other kinds of outward acts of sin, but coveting in itself is a thought sin. So it goes all the way back at least to the Ten Commandments. Understand that there is such a thing as, as thought sin. You don't have to act these things out. So the fact that you have thoughts and you never act them out, that does not make you innocent. Do you understand? Uh, Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows what's inside a man or a woman, and, and you are judged by the one who perfectly judges you in his holiness. And uh, actually says that we become guilty of sexual sin just by the nature of our thoughts. Let's go then uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 13. This is our major text tonight. This is a horrible, horrible story that isn't read very often in church, and we'll talk about that. But let's go to it tonight for what we can learn. Jesus clearly teaches that sexual thoughts, impure thoughts, make us guilty of sin. And that puts some of us in a very difficult place because... Honestly, there are probably a number of us, even in this house tonight on a Sunday night, who really struggle in, in this area. Nobody knows because nobody's going to know that this is just your private peep show in your own head. The, the fantasies, the images, the thoughts that you continue to entertain. And in a lot of ways, you don't feel in control of this. And you would love to be set free. Let's talk about it tonight. Let's let the Holy Spirit set us free. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. This is a very important story in the way the Old Testament unfolds, but not a story we read, and uh, you're about to find out why. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. You would almost have to draw out a family tree of David, and then that in itself would just make your head explode. Uh, David, uh, just remember, he had a lot of wives. That was permissible in, in the ancient days. He had a number of wives. Some of those wives were just political. These weren't women he necessarily loved with all of his heart. He was a king, and for political reasons, he would bring in wives. Uh, with each of these wives, he had children. These children might not even know each other very well. 
they were half brothers, half sisters. They may have shared David as a father, but they had different mothers. It, it's convoluted. It's crazy. And, and the craziness spills over into this chapter. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, an event that happens in the lives of David's children. We're talking about half-brothers, half-sisters. It's bizarre, um, but that's where we are. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, okay, you with me? Her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Okay? Desperately in love. Let that... Hang in your mind as we read this story, and I'm going to ask you in a minute if you really think this is love, all right? Desperately in love. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab, and he was the son of David's brother Shemiah. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, what's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? And Amnon told him, I'm in love with Tamar, my, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him, now whose father? Who's her father? David, King David. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. Now let me stop. There, there seemed to be some ancient Jewish traditions that, that truly, if a person were ill, certain kinds of food prepared by a virgin and fed with her hand, th there is some sort of folklore that this might have been somehow medicinal. So anyway, this is what the cousin suggests. Act this out. Act like you're sick and that you need this food prepared by a virgin and just suggest that David send Tamar. So that's the plan. Verse 6, Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants, so they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, come lie with me. It's sexual. Come lie with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it and he'll let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate. Okay, think about that. Suddenly his love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. What he really says here is not throw this woman. He says, throw this out of here. Throw this out of here. 
It's like she's not even a person. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now. Since he's your brother, don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Okay, let's stop there. The Bible has actually a number of stories like this that really illustrate well the, the, uh, the depravity and the brokenness that can be expressed in, in human sexual relationships. For the most part, we never read them, at least not in church. Why do you think that is? Why is this a story that, you know, I kind of had to prepare you for, you know, eight hours in advance, give you the opportunity not to come, maybe take an extra pill. Why are these the kind of stories that we just don't read in church? Even though they're in God's inspired word, don't miss that. We don't want to see it in church because we don't want to see it in society. Yeah, yeah. It's just too painful. It's just too painful. Yeah. What else? Why could we go years and years and years and never bring this up? This will never be in your Sunday school quarterly, I promise. Well, it is awkward. Church is one of those places where you do have a mixed audience. It's Mother's Day. Some of you are listening to this story and your mama's in the room and you're thinking, gross. Oh, mama just heard those words. Yeah. You like to think mama didn't know anything about this stuff. <laughs> she knows. Yeah, she just does. She does. But, but it gets awkward. We just read this whole this awful story in front of every church lady, in front of our deacons. You heard the pastor say rape. We just don't like that. It doesn't seem to fit the people of God, the family of God. It just gets really awkward. We have our children in the room with us, and sometimes that's just really awkward. If this came on television, I pray you'd probably change the channel in front of your kids. You don't want this in front of your kids. And so for the most part, we've just sort of learned to, to edit out these passages, edit out stories like this, and we, so as a result, we... We hardly ever read them, and if we read them, we don't ever talk about them as the people of God. And therefore, we never learn the lessons that come from these stories. I would argue, and it goes back to what Jack says, uh, the way we maintain a silence about these things in church only perpetuates a situation in our society where these sorts of things never get talked about from a moral context. Never talked about from a perspective of what God desires or how God sees the, the, the promise and the peril of our, of our sexuality. As a result, the kinds of secrecy, the kinds of lust, the kinds of abuse, the kinds of rape, even inside a family, all of this happens in this story, but we never read it in church. We don't talk about that in church, and we actually create an atmosphere where these things can continue to fester and grow and happen because it stays secret. It always stays secret. 
I happen to believe that the Bible we have is the Bible God intended us to have. And I happen to believe that stories like this are also intended for the people of God to have and to read and to learn from. There are important things here. Let's start breaking the story down and let's see how it comes home for us. Verse 1. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her, so obsessed with her that he became ill. Yeah, if this were a rock and roll song, he was lovesick. Understand? Uh, he just wanted her so bad. Yeah, it, it, this is like a rock and roll song. It's a love song. He's desperate. He was just sick. He was, loved her so much. Hmm. Flip back. Just, just look at the context. What, what's the story that happens right before this story? Go back to chapter 11. Go back to chapter 12. We're in chapter 13. What's, what have we just read, if you're reading straight through this book? The whole story of what? David's sexual sin. King David, what did he do? Do you remember? It was a time for the kings to be out in battle, but that's not where he was. Where was he? On his patio. On his patio. Just there. Idle. Not where he ought to be. He looked across. He saw a beautiful woman, and he said, I've got to have her. And you know the story from there. So this is chapter 13. Now we're talking about David's kids, David's children. And this is a very important story in everything that happens afterwards in the life of David's family. But we're going to focus on the young man Amnon. Where do you think he gets his attitude toward women? It's a fundamental part of this story. This is a young man who is damaged when it comes to the way he looks at women. He's damaged. He's terribly damaged. This is a man who does not think straight when it comes to women. He's a dangerous young man, and it has to do simply with the way he sees women. He's damaged and he's dangerous. Where did he get that? He gets it from his father. He gets it from his father. Now, there are great lessons here to be learned for all of us inside families, you understand? But especially those of us who are fathers and mothers. It's a very simple principle when it comes to sexual things. you got to be really, really careful what you bring into your house. Now, I don't just mean physical things. I'm not just talking about physical things, but, but certainly physical things. You've got to be really, really careful what comes into your house. I promise you, there was never a moment when King David sat his sons down and said, Listen, boys, let me tell you how to be an absolute creep around women. Let me tell you how to just look at women as objects. Let me tell you how to ruin your life and the life of women and the lives of all kinds of people. Let me teach you how to blow a hole in your sexuality. There was never a day when David said, Boys, sit down, let me ruin your lives. But he never had to. You understand that? Never had to. There are just certain things that you learn from mom and dad. Certain things you just inherit from dad. And this is one of them. Now part of this is, is the devil's role in our lives. Truly he wants to destroy us. And one of the best ways to destroy us is at the point of our sexuality. Remember, our sexuality is part of the way God made us beautiful in his image. 
Sex is God's idea, created as something to be celebrated and shared and kept pure between a wife and a husband. It's beautiful, it's pure, it belongs in marriage, it's just so good. And when it's left in that context, it's such a tremendous way for a man to to express and celebrate his manhood and for a woman to express and celebrate her womanhood. It's such a wonderful bonding opportunity to share and celebrate and release so much joy in, in marriage. That's what it's for. That's what it's for. And God created us for that. And it cuts so much to the heart of who I am as a man and who you are as a man or woman. And the devil knows if he can get to that, if he can spoil that, if he can twist a young man's idea of what it means to be a man, if he can twist a woman's idea of what it is to be with a man, if he can damage us here, he does real damage, deep spiritual damage, because this truly cuts right to the core of who I am. This is why so much of our sexual lives are Really, it's really located in our thoughts, in our minds, in our heart. This is inward. This is deeply inward. But, but at the same time, this is something that, that is so easily transmitted in a family. So easily transmitted in a family. You never intended to teach your sons to repeat your sexual habits and mistakes. You never intended. You actually thought you kept it hidden, but I'm telling you, you just have to be really, really careful what you allow into your family, what you allow into your own mind. Because inevitably, we share it in the family. It's kind of like the stomach virus. You just can't keep it to yourself, no matter how hard you try. Where did Amnon get this? He gets it from his father, just like his father. How would you describe his attitude toward women? Actually, it sounds pretty good at first. He's just in love. He's just in love. We all fall in love. I fell in love with Farrah Fawcett Majors. I did. I loved her. I had her on every divider, every single divider of my notebook in whatever grade it was. Now, my mom and daddy would have never let me bought that poster, so I cut it out of the TV guide. Put her in there. Yeah. I was in love with Farrah Fawcett. I mean, young men just fall in love. He's just in love, desperately in love. I mean, what do you do about that? You don't choose who you fall in love with. What is his attitude toward women? Is he in love? He just wants that woman. Yeah, she's just beautiful. She's just beautiful. And, and honestly, this is the painful part of the story. She is. She is. Read the story of David. Look closely at his family. I'm telling you, you don't find anybody in David's whole story. You don't find a single member of his family that is just righteous and wise and courageous and brave. They're always somehow flawed, but not her. Not her. Tamar really does seem to be the purest, bravest, wisest member of this whole family. Even in this situation where she's, she's raped and, and horribly treated, she continues to remain so incredibly composed and wise. She reasons with the man who's totally unreasonable. This woman is amazing, and that's what makes the way she's treated so, so devastating. He doesn't see her for what she is. He just sees her for what he wants. Is this love? No, it is. It's lust. It's lust. They are not the same thing. They're not even coming from the same place. They're, they're nothing the same. 
Now, how do we know that it's not love? He says he loves her, thinks about her all the time. How do we know that this is not love? Let's, let's define the terms. What is love? Beloved, let us love one another, First John says. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one that does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is how we know what love is. God sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. This is what love is according to scripture. What's love? Where does it come from always? It always comes from God. And what does love do? What are the characteristics of genuine love? It's always about the other person. Now, it's not obsessive, this desire to consume and to have. Notice Amnon gets sick, not because he loves her so much, but because he's afraid he'll never have her. Understand? That's a desire to possess. That's a desire to control and consume. That's not love. And this is love, that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for his sin. The scripture says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. You understand? Love is always focused on the other person with a desire to give and sacrifice and bleed and die. Do you understand? Love is always from God. It's always pure and it always comes from this desire to bless and give and die for that's not what lust is that's not what lust is now what is lust if you define this we won't assume that you know all about it just tell us what you know what's lust yeah lust is all about my own self-gratification it's about me and for Amnon it's all about him He's just afraid he'll never have her. It's about himself. It's about getting yourself satisfied. It's about getting something from the other person. Now, that's lust. It's lust. And that's sin. It's sin. It's always sin. Do you understand? It's always sin. Always. Verse 12. I'm not going to go real far with this, but I want to say it. Verse 11, as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come lie with me, my sister. No, my brother, she cried. No. Okay, rural simple, guys. Rural simple. But, but when a woman says no, you stop. I'm not going to go real far in that. But when a woman says no, you stop. You always stop. It doesn't matter if you're on a date. It doesn't matter if she's smiling when she says it. When she says no, you stop. Because anything past that point is abuse or rape. While we're defining things. Anything past her saying no is abuse or rape. When she says no, you always stop. You always stop. And then here's the thing. Verse 15. Suddenly, Amnon's love turned to hate. And he hated her even more than he loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, she cried. Okay, explain that. Instantly. I mean, instantly. He hates her. How do you explain that? Instantly. And he hated her 
more than he ever loved her. Yeah. When he says he loved her, it was never love. It was never love. He always just wanted what he wanted from her, and what he wanted was sexual satisfaction from her. That's all he ever wanted. He, he manipulated her to get that, and once he had that, he was completely finished with her, completely disgusted with her. Absolutely. And what was she talking about at the time? Consequences. Yeah, again, Tamar is this incredible woman who stands there before he does this and she says, do you understand what you're doing? Of course he doesn't. This will be the consequences. She's understanding consequences, but he's not thinking about consequences. He's not thinking at all. And this is what happens when, when sexual fantasy, when sexual thoughts begin to occupy our minds. We no longer think logically. We no longer think at all. And this is a woman who is able to plead with him and lay out the consequences. This is what will happen if you do this thing. Please don't do this thing. It's nothing to do with the consequences. But once the deed is done, she is the living, breathing representation of those consequences. And he hates the sight of her. And so he's done with her. I know that there are women in this room right now who've experienced this, and, and God bless your heart. You've experienced this. You thought that if you gave sex, he'd give you love. But it never works out that way. Do you understand? It never works out that way. You will never get love by giving sex. Because lust and love are not the same thing. They don't come from the same place, and once he gets what he wants, he'll be done with you. devastating that his so-called love turns so quickly only to hate and then one of the most devastating parts of the story people start finding out people inside the family start finding out people know but but what do they say verse 20 brother Absalom saw and asked is it true that Amnon has been with you well my sister what keep quiet keep quiet what does that do it only guarantees that for the rest of her life she would live as a desolate woman in, a, in Absalom's house well you've got to understand that, that secrets make you sick secrets make you sick and, and this secret is going to nearly destroy this entire family understand secrets make you sick Secrets make you sick, and especially inside a family, and especially inside your own life. This is what makes sexual thought sin so, so damaging, so very dangerous and, and important. It's, it's because it becomes your secret. You don't let your wife, you don't let your husband, you don't let your parents, you don't let anybody know the kinds of things that you think about. And, and honestly, that has a very isolating effect for you. You have to work so hard to, to keep this secret of, of actual, the, the, the kind of perversion and darkness that lives inside of you. And, and this secrecy, and it's, it's necessary because of the nature of your sin. 
that this secrecy begins to cut you off. It, it, it destroys your marriage. It really kills the intimacy that you could actually have with this woman that is your wife because you have to maintain the, the, the secrecy of your own thought sin. Did you understand? It, it's the secrecy of it that, that actually makes you sick. Let's talk a little more about the sin itself. Go back to the beginning and let's trace it back because it begins exactly where we've been saying. It begins with thoughts. Verse 2, Amnon became so what? Obsessed, obsessed. He fell desperately in love with her. He became so obsessed with her that he became physically ill. She was a virgin, so he thought he could never have her. It, it's, it's a thought. At first, it's just a thought, maybe. Again, Amnon and Tamar probably don't live close to each other. Tamar, like most of the virgin daughters of the king, is probably kept in a separate court. Uh, and he would have no access to her. When he says he'll never have her, he's never going to have her. It's just a thought at first, but it becomes, the biblical word there is, is obsession. The, the word there is, is obsession. What is an obsession? And when does a thought become an obsession? Yeah, when it starts to, to consume everything. The Hebrew word there is yatzer, yatzer, and it literally means to tie up or, or to bind. Okay, so understand this, in your thought life, in your thought life, you can begin to entertain thoughts to the point where you become bound to them. You become tied up with them. And at that point, it goes back to the scripture we started this series with, whatever controls you, you become a slave to. And so truly in your thoughts, you can become bound to things. You can become so tied up with the thought, with the fantasy, that it truly becomes a kind of obsession. But at that point, in many ways, we could say you've lost control. You're not beyond responsibility, but you've lost a measure of control because you have continued to allow this thought to bind you, to, to put down deep roots in your mind and in your heart. That word yatser, it, it means to become bound to. So my question for you is, in your own thought life, what are you binding yourself to? In, in your sexual thought life, what are you binding yourself to? What kinds of thoughts, what kind of fantasies are you binding yourself to? Especially as a young person, don't you understand that, that by the way you allow your own mind to, to think sexually, you're really determining the kind of woman, the kind of man you'll become, the kind of sexual partner you'll be one day. What are you allowing your thoughts to bind you to? It starts out as a thought. It starts out as a thought which becomes a, a kind of, of obsession. But what's so wrong with it? I mean, again, he raped her and that's bad, but what if he just had just thought about her forever? Kind of like the way you think about Angelina Jolie. You're never going to have her either. Not a chance, buddy. So just think about her. It's just a thought, right? It's just a thought. You know, your wife's thinking about Brad Pitt, maybe. She won't have him either. She's got something real close, though. No, seriously, we're not going to act a lot of these things out, so what's so wrong? What's so wrong? I mean, I'm not going to act it out. I'm not going to do it. Wouldn't it be better just to think about it? I'm not going to go do it. Maybe thinking about it keeps me from doing it. Yeah, yeah, and Jack, that is so perfect. Yeah, it's not that, that my thoughts keep me from doing it. It's keeping me from doing what God wants me to do. 
It is going to block everything God wants to do in my life. It's going to block his process of sanctifying me and making me more like him. Let's go a little deeper. What is the, what's the sin in, in lust? Well, what's the sin in that? I remember once when Barbara Bush was, y'all remember Barbara Bush leaving? Y'all remember Barbara Bush? Yeah. Uh, Barbara Bush was this lovely older lady, white hair, hairdo, pearls, dress, just, you know, like, like somebody's grandma. Barbara Bush was just a cool lady, though. And, and uh, when she came into the White House, remember Nancy Reagan was leaving the White House. And there was all kinds of rumors about Nancy Reagan, how she was having an affair with, was it Frank Sinatra? Told all these stories about Nancy Reagan having affairs and doing all this stuff. And they asked Barbara Bush, they said, Miss Bush, do you think people will spread rumors like that about you? Barbara Bush said, I hope so. <laughs> really? Yeah. What was she saying? It's kind of funny, but why would she say, yeah, I hope so? Something about us, we kind of enjoy being sexy. Even Barbara Bush. Yeah. Even all of us, there's just a part of us that is created that way, and we want to be desired, and, and indulging those desires is something that, that, that feels pleasurable for us. And where's, where's the sin in it? Well, well it's not pure, and, and therefore it, it's wrong. Yeah, it, 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 It's a sin against the, the person, but I haven't hurt you. You have no idea that I've thought this thought about you. I mean... I mean Fair Fawcett Majors was never hurt by me, was she? Well, look at Amnon, and especially what he says after he's done his thing and ready to throw her out. Verse 17, as I, I illustrated, he doesn't say throw this woman out. He says throw this out. Get that out of here. He's talking now to the servants. He says get that out of here. He's talking about a person. He's talking about a person, but she's not a person to him. Get that out of here. He's talking like he's throwing out the garbage for the day. Get that out of here. Get it out of here. Lust always uh, treats other people like they're not people. They just become objects for, for, for my consumption, for your consumption. This is a person created in God's image to glorify him and, and praise him forever. Do you understand this? You have no right. You have, I don't care if it's a celebrity on TV. I don't care if it's a lingerie ad in, in the Target uh, paper in your newspaper today. I don't care who it is. It's a person created in God's image. And you have no right to take that person and use them in your mind for your sexual fantasies. You have no right to do that. You're taking a person that God made, that Jesus died for, and you are reducing them to nothing. Reducing them to something that you can just simply fantasize over and, and use. You have no right to do that. It's, it, it's sin. It, it's sinful. It's, it is an affront to that person, though they may never know. And it is an affront to the creator, the maker, the father, you understand, who loves that person and knows your thoughts. Lust always has a way of treating people like they're not people. So, so let's break it down. This kind of sexual thought sin is a spiritual stronghold, as we've talked about in 2 Corinthians. It's a spiritual stronghold for many people. This is the place where the devil has you. This is the place where you are blocked in your spiritual life. You're not going to go further. 
You're not going to grow more like Christ because this is, this is poison. This is a terrible problem in your mind, in your heart. You understand? And so you have to get serious, like everything else, serious about defeating this kind of thought sin. It goes right back to everything we've said about defeating thought habits. It goes right back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. You have to take these thoughts captive. This is very, very difficult because some of us entertain these thoughts for so long. Some of us have so, so very much of our own manhood or womanhood tied up in our sexuality that honestly, we enjoy these thoughts. But for some of us, it is these thoughts which comfort us. It's these thoughts that we turn to when we're stressed or when we feel like we've been taken advantage of. We really feed on these thoughts. And the difficult thing about it is, is our sexual desires are a part of how God made us. It is not a sin to be sexual. It's not a sin to have sexual desire. God created us for this inside marriage. And that's why this particular sin becomes so difficult because it's something God gave us, but something that we allow to become so perverted. We have to wrestle these thoughts to the ground. You cannot let your mind just roam free. You cannot allow yourself to fantasize the way you have learned to fantasize. It is a sinful habit that, that is doing damage to you as a man, damage to you as a woman. It's hurting your marriage. You've got to get serious about this thought habit. You've got to learn to take these thoughts, capture them in your mind. Don't let them just fly through. Don't let yourself continue to think you've got to capture that thought. Wrestle it down. Bring it into submission to make it obedient to the truth of Christ. That's what scripture says. This is spiritual warfare. This is where the devil is having you for lunch every day. This is where you're going to have to fight him. Take thoughts captive. Take thoughts captive. That's where it begins. We also said, we were talking about habits, you've got to identify the, the thought trigger. Remember, James chapter 1, verse 14 says, every one of us is tempted, and it begins with the desire. It begins with the desire that drags us away and entices us into sin. So there is that moment when, when the trap is set with, with the bait. We're enticed but by desire. We've got to learn to identify the trigger. For many of us, this is a thought habit. But it probably follows a pattern. You know when you're going to be most tempted. And you need to learn to begin making a different choice before you're in the moment too deep to back your way out. Identify the trigger. For some of us, it's going to be when we're home by ourselves, when we're home alone. That's going to be the trigger. That's when we know that we're most likely to be tempted in this way. Identify the trigger. For others of us, it's the moment we sit down at a computer. There are men in this room who don't even know other things computers are used for. You don't even know that you could be playing poker. Because every time you sit down to a computer now, you go to porn. You go to porn. You don't even know that other people do their, do their taxes on computers because a computer means one thing for you now. Sir, this is a problem. This is a problem. It's a spiritual problem, and you're going to have to let the Spirit change the way you think. But identify that trigger. If it's a problem with the computer, you've got to begin doing battle right there. Maybe it's when you step into the shower. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's when you're traveling alone and in a hotel room with pay-per-view. I don't know. But you've got to figure this out. What are the triggers? Maybe it's after a long day's work and you're just tired. And whenever you're tired, you look for ways to comfort yourselves. And sexual fantasies are one of the things that just, that just sort of help you relax. I don't know. 
but you've got to figure this out. You've got to get serious about this battle because it's a spiritual battle and it's in your mind. As we said with, with, with conquering these habits, you've got to identify that trigger and then choose your behavior. Figure out what you're going to do next time you're tempted. Next time you're in that situation, what will you do differently? And then you follow through. This is how sanctification works in our lives. This is how the Spirit changes us. We have to cooperate. Now, I'd recommend a book to you. There is a woman's version, but being a man, I have the man's version. It's called Every Man's Battle by Stephen Arterburn. Great book. Great book for every man in this room. There is an Every Young Man's Battle for every young man. This is a great book, a great biblical book. One of the wonderful things that Arterburn talks about is forming new habits. When you're tempted, when you see a beautiful woman and you realize that you're beginning to think sexually about her, Arterburn talks about two things. He says you have to bounce your eyes. You have to bounce your eyes. In other words, you have to develop a new habit of not letting your eyes focus or letting your eyes wander on this person and their sexual attractiveness to you. You've got to learn to look away. Now, this is ancient. In the book of Job, chapter 31, verse 1, Job says what? Long time ago, I made a bargain with my eyes. That's what Job says. He's talking about his own righteousness. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Me and my eyes have a deal. And what's the deal? I will not look lustfully on a woman. Job says that was his habit. Made a deal with my eyes. In other words, I've trained my eyes differently. I don't let my eyes focus on a woman like that. Understand? Arterburn calls that bouncing your eyes. Learning to look away. Learning not to let your eyes focus on that person, on that part of their bodies that, that seems to be exciting to you. You've got to learn to look away. You've got to train your eyes to do that because that builds to Arterburn's second step, and he calls it starving your eyes. You sort of have to starve this habit. Most people who become really entangled in sexual thoughts in, honestly, they need new inspiration all the time. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you need to feed that. You need new images. You're in an office and you see a receptionist with a low-cut blouse and immediately you store that away because you're going to use that later. You understand? We feed this habit. We feed it. You look for pictures. You look for something on television. You look for an image, a fantasy that can continue to feed this. And Arterburn says, as a part of the Holy Spirit changing the way you think, you've got to starve that part of your brain. You've got to stop feeding it new images. You've got to stop the fantasies. You've got to, you've got to stop that stream of new thoughts, new fantasies, new pictures. You've got to turn that off. One of the turning points in the story, and this is how we'll close, is when Amnon shares his problem with uh, his cousin, Jonadab. This is kind of the place where the story could have gone differently. But instead, Jonadab uh, is a creep. Jonadab actually, when Amnon tells him what he's thinking, what does Jonadab say? Man, that sounds awesome. That's what he says. Man, dude, you got to do that. That, that. that sounds great. You need to get her. The problem is, 
he, he found a person that made his perversion seem normal. You understand? His, his friend never said, you need to think about this, buddy. This sounds horrible. This is illegal and immoral and wrong in so many levels. You've really got to stop and think. That's not what his friend said. His friend said, dude, wow, you know, that, that, that's cool. I want the video when you're done. I mean, this is how John Adab thinks. And unfortunately, it's how most everybody we know thinks. This is how the world thinks and operates. And we have to counter that. We have to counter that in the church. We have to counter that in our Christian friendships. We, we can't let this kind of behavior, we can't let the, the, the pornification of our culture be normal. And this is why in breaking this particular sin, I would say we have to go back to two ancient Christian practices, confession and accountability. Confession and accountability. If you are a person who is struggling with, with sexual thoughts and sexual habits that, that truly have you at this point tied up in knots, if, if your sexual thoughts have got you to the point where you have allowed yourself to be bound to things you do not need to be bound to, then understand, you've got to let Christ transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And one of the most ancient and biblical ways that that happens, it begins with confession. You've got to be willing to call what you're doing sin, even if it's only thoughts in your head. Even if it's only the way you allow your thoughts to go toward men or toward women, you've got to call it sin. That's what it is. And get serious about that. And especially with this particular kind of sin, I insist that you probably need to confess that to somebody. You probably need to talk to somebody. Because here's the thing. Our, our sexual sins tend to be so private secret and that's where they have their power over us the reason sir why you continue to have this incredible addiction to internet pornography is because of the secrecy of it you know how to clear your tracks when you're done you know how to make sure your mother and father never find out you know how to clear out your phone it's the secrecy of it that gives it this power and so honestly once you break the power of that secrecy once you tell the secret to somebody, understand, that sin loses a little bit of its grip on you. It, it loses its power when the secrecy is gone. That's why confession goes with accountability. Through confession, by finding a brother, a Christian brother that you can trust, somebody who's not going to go, dude, that sounds awesome, but somebody's going to say, dude, you're broken. You really need help. Let me help you. Let's go to the Lord together. Friend, you're on a bad course. This is going to ruin you. you got to find a Christian brother who's going to lift you up like that. Get in your face and call what you're doing sin. Look for that guy. Look for that guy. Then let him be your friend. Accountability becomes very, very important. Get somebody in your life that you will allow to ask you questions about these things. Somebody in your life who can say, after you get back from your business trip, hey, what did you do in the hotel room while you were there? What did you watch on TV? Did you call your wife? you understand how this works? We need accountability. Paul says anybody who's baptized into Christ, you're baptized into the body of Christ. We need each other. There are battles that we have to fight that we can only fight in the spirit, only by the power of Christ. But honestly, often that power comes when I become engaged in the body of Christ. I need my brothers in this area. You do too. Remember, secrets make you sick. And if you can find somebody, a Christian brother, if you're a man or a Christian sister, if you're a woman, 
Tell your secret. Unburden yourself. I'm telling you, this is the beginning of getting victory in this part of your life. You are a slave to whatever controls you. A lot of people are controlled but by sexual obsessions. Christians too. But I'm telling you, this is sin. It is something you're going to have to battle spiritually. It's also something that Christ intends for you to have victory over. You can have victory, but you're going to have to join the fight. Any final thoughts? Let's, let's finish with prayer. God, you have created us male and female in your image. You have created us, Lord, with bodies, beautiful bodies. You've created us, Lord, with a capacity for intimacy and sharing physically, Lord, that is truly so beautiful within marriage. We thank you, Lord, for what you have given as a secret to husbands and wives. Lord, thank you, thank you. May it always be kept pure and undefiled, Lord. May we keep the marriage bed, Lord, pure and holy, Lord, in this place. But, Lord, it's not just the bed, Lord. It's, it's our minds. It's our minds, Lord, that we have to keep pure and undefiled. Lord Jesus, we often get into the trap of rationalizing our thought sins by saying that we'll never act them out, Lord. And nobody's hurt by this. But, Lord, our sin is against you. You call our sin, sin. So, Lord, help us humbly to confess our sins before you and allow you to change us into new people by transforming the way we think. God, for some of us, our minds are filthy, and we have made them that way. But, Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your Spirit, you would enable us, Lord, day by day to wrestle these thoughts to the ground and replace them, Lord, with things that are pure and, and noble and righteous and good. Lord, I pray for the young people in this room still figuring out who they are as young men and women. I pray that they will always know the difference between lust and love, and I pray, Lord, that they will never give themselves away to anyone, Lord, who doesn't know what love is. Lord Jesus, I pray that all of us together would learn how to talk about difficult things, learn how to be honest about our struggles, Learn how to walk beside each other, Lord, so that we can together learn to think and become more like you, O Christ. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.